Well, for the love of mud, where am I sleeping, on a racetrack? Come on, let's have it. Who are you? Where'd you come from? Don't rush me, brother. I'm Pollyanna the Glad Girl. Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen, joined once again by Kimberly, and we are celebrating a birthday and a milestone. We are talking about Gene Harlow in the 1932 feature Red Dust, which is turning 90 this year. And we are, of course, joined by a Gene Harlow expert Jack of all trades, awesome friend of the podcast who was with us all the way back in our earliest Gene Harlow episode. It's Mr. Daryl Rooney. Daryl, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, we're good. We thank you for jumping back into the Harlow pool to chat with us about this. Always my favorite subject. (laughs) For people who have not seen Red Dust, it's directed uncredited by Victor Fleming based on a script by John Lee Mahan. It's the story of a rubber plantation owner, Dennis Carson, played by Clark Gable, who meets a delightful sex worker with a heart of gold, Fantine, played by Jean Harlow. Passions flare, but are quickly tempered when the owner of the plantation, as as Carson is just the overseer, played by Jean Raymond, shows up with his very high-toned and fancy wife, played by Mary Astor, and we get a bit of a love triangle and some classism and some good old-fashioned pre-code shenanigans. I wanted to start off, Daryl, for people that don't know you, can you talk a little bit about your discovery of Jean Harlow, how that turned into you wanting to write about her and devote your time to preserving her legacy, and what do you thought about this film the first time you saw it? Well, my interest in Jean Harlow started when I was a teenager, preteen teenager. That was way back in the early 1970s. It's when there was a big nostalgia boom. John Cabal books came out, and I just was riveted by all this glamour photography I'd never seen. And all of these people were so remote and so perfect looking like marble statues. And then you turn the page and there's Jean Harlow this big smile on her face, just radiating life and vitality and warmth. She really stuck out to me in a way where I sort of felt like, hmm, I know you. There's something about you I just know. She wasn't like everyone else. She was very contemporary in the way she looked in photographs in terms of her emotions. She was incredibly accessible. In all of the iterations of peeling back the onions to learn more about her over the last four or five decades. She's still that same person. She's incredibly radiant, warm, and a little bold. I collected pictures for years. I collected information. My co-author was a friend, Mark Vieira, who was a photographer. He would come to me and say, do you know where this picture was taken? I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was taken in such and such location. And then he starts saying, you know, we should do a book together someday. That's what happened. For the 100th anniversary of Gene Harlow's birth, we did Harlow in Hollywood. And it's still popular, but completely sold out. So it's actually going to be updated and come out this September. 
new pictures, some new, new updated text within captioning, a little bit of shuffling. It's going to be gorgeous. I am so ready for that because you are right. Your book is very, very hard to get your hands on and I've tried. So I'm ready for an updated version that I can actually own. <laughs> you don't have one? I don't know. I got oh one. God, we're totally going to take care of that. My copy was from the library that I checked out and I got to read it. And that was a long time ago. I'm well, ready to rectify this. Red Dust, what was your first experience with this movie? Harlow, most people think of maybe Bombshell or Libel Lady. And they don't really think of this very good, dramatic, romantic, sexy movie that she was in that also presented an image of her that also was a bit controversial. What was your first time viewing like of this movie? First time I saw it was sometime in the 1970s, one of those midnight shows, and I just was spellbound by it. The chemistry between Clark Gable and Gene Harlow is riveting, and the studio knew that they had lightning in a bottle when they had put the two of them together, so much so that the advertising said they were born to co-star. It was so unique and strong that they did it six times. That's pretty impressive. I was amazed at how accessible she was. She plays a prostitute, a prostitute with a heart of gold that you feel extremely sympathetic towards. She's motivated by love. What happens between her and Clark Gable is love for her, but she's the bad girl and she gets pushed aside by some new candy that shows up. But she hangs on to the hope that this love is real for her and that he'll come to his senses. After some gunplay, <laughs> he does, and it's a happy ending. It's a must-see to learn about the, boy, the range of this girl, because up until then, she was not considered a good actress. Oh, suddenly she could do comedies. Comedy. She could do sexy comedy. This was a dramatic role, and she really inhabits the role perfectly. Kim, I know that you have done some research and you talk about the early 1930s with regards to Jean Harlow's life. Do you remember the first time you saw this movie and what you thought? My entree to Harlow was actually through Franco Tone. I was going through some of Tone's earlier movies and I watched, it was The Girl from Missouri first. And was blown away by their chemistry and her work in that and went backwards and dove into the other things. This is that Harlow role, though, for me, that's always been there. You said people think of Reckless, people think of Bombshell. This is the one that I go to. I mean, aside from the first time I think I saw her, which was as a kid watching Night Court on television, one of the characters has her picture behind his desk. Harlow's been there for me since I was a toddler. I just might not have necessarily known the name. But Red Dust, this is that role that you think about, the rain barrel. And this is iconic Harlow at her most glowing and gorgeous. And it's hard to speak to the first time I saw it. It was one in a many that I watched and just was amazed by her work and how her name isn't necessarily as known as it should be. I had pigeonholed her a bit before I knew quite what she could do. It was just one after another of everything you were just saying, how relatable, how 
versatile, how interesting she is to watch. She's really just been pigeonholed as the bombshell. Probably the first Jean Harlow movie I ever saw was the movie she made. One of the movies she made the year before, which is Platinum Blonde. She plays a villain in that movie, or at least a character that you're not meant to support in that film. It's a different role for her. And I watched that and I really enjoyed that movie. I don't think a lot of people would say that Platinum Blonde is Jean Harlow's film per se, even though she is probably one of the most memorable elements of it. I remember getting a box set for Christmas of a bunch of Jean Harlow movies and it had this movie, I think, alongside stuff like Dinner at Eight, Bombshell, and Reckless, Girl from Missouri. This was the one that I love the most. This is my favorite Jean Harlow movie, maybe next to Libel Lady, which everybody seems to love. A lot of the reason I appreciate this movie is that it is so unrepentant in its characterization of Van Teen. It's 1932, so you can say a bit more frankly that she is a sex worker she comes off the boat and she's a woman that has lived a hard life and she's very sensual not necessarily sexual because it's not like a lusty thing her and dennis the clark gable character have this natural camaraderie not necessarily respect for each other because i don't think he respects a lot of women at the beginning of this movie but they understand each other. They have this really easygoing atmosphere that you can contrast with once Mary Astor's character Barbara shows up. It's a movie where for being a woman who has sex, she does not have trauma. She doesn't die, which is progress in 1932. So I really liked her depiction in this movie in a film where Even though Clark Gable is the equal to her in this, I watch it for her. She is the reason this movie works so well because he's just Clark Gable, right? He's pre-co Clark Gable, which is my favorite Clark Gable. He strides around. He's flirting with the border of misogynist. He's not a cuddly character. It's not Peter Warren from It Happened One Night. She's a cuddly character. Even though she is this hard living woman, She's relatable and she's sweet and she's kind. And that's nuance. A lot of people who watch classic films always say, oh, the women. It's such a horrible time for female characters. But they're watching the wrong movies because this shows that she did play good roles that do have a little nuance to them. Daryl, am I completely off base? What do you think? No, I'm so impressed with what you're saying. You're explaining in very current terms, which I find really refreshing brings the conversation to today. Younger people can listen to this and go, oh, well, then maybe I should watch her. She's a working girl. She's not at that plantation because she's working. She got dumped off there. So she's not on the make. And it's only when he shows interest in her that she is agreeable, though she does like him. She can see that they have chemistry. Then it turns to love for her. For him, he's shut down. So It's just, oh, move her out next till he comes to his senses. Daryl, can you talk about this movie is usually put aside in favor of Harlow's comedies. But can you talk about was this a game changer for her career? I know it was controversial considering her personal life at the time. 
in the oeuvre of Jean Harlow, where does this movie stand in the significance of her career? This is only her second film with her MGM contract. So this is really early on. Her first film with her MGM contract is Redheaded Woman, which turns out to be a smash hit. It's a sex comedy. She's making fun of people. She's making fun of sex. She's funny. She's sexy. She was never a darling of the critics. And with the success of Redheaded Woman, the critics fall all over themselves, hurling superlatives at her. All of a sudden, she's in command of the screen in a way she had never been before. So Red Dust is the follow-up film to that, which is going to be a drama. So they have a lot of expectations to really push her range and her abilities. I think it's so impressive that she can play serious as strongly as she plays comedy. And that's what this film does for her. Kim, I know that you are a big fan. I don't know if you can say fan, but Paul Byrne is a cause celeb for you. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. If memory serves, this movie is significant in regards to her relationship there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I will say it has been a while since I dove in. Burns, suicide, slash wherever you go on that. And there's a lot of different readings on what happened there and that whole situation. That happened during the shooting of this, if I'm not mistaken. Wasn't the rain barrel scene her first, one of her first scenes back from Mm -hmm. after that happened? His death happened on Labor Day weekend, and she came back September 12th, and they put her in the rain barrel to do this sexy comedy scene. Victor Fleming said that she hit all of her marks, but when they looked at the dailies, the look in her eyes betrayed her, and they reshot on the 13th. So he basically had to say, no, you can't be in pain. You have to throw it away and just jump in. That's what she did. That's asking a lot, but she delivered. When I had always heard rumors too, and this could be because of our, what we would now characterize as inappropriate ownership of actresses' bodies, but I always heard rumors that there were nude photos of her from that rain barrel sequence that the cameraman snarkily took is that true or is that just Hollywood myth? Nobody did anything secretive. No, she pulled a stunt and she probably did it on the 13th because it was the rain barrel scene. I'm just going to say it was the second day, not the first day, because the first day was so difficult. She was topless in the rain barrel. She's the one who lifted herself up and said, this is for the boys in the lab. That was as far as it would go. It's her reclaiming her strength and her power, I think, deserting herself to get past the trauma that she's having. It was a playful thing. It made everyone laugh, I'm sure, and made everyone pay attention. But that's what happened. Red stuff. Somebody, she's sitting in a director's chair with her bathrobe and some stepped on the end of it. And when she got up out of the chair, the bathrobe rips off and she's standing there naked. That didn't happen. That's not the kind of thing that happened at MGM. It's an interesting story, especially when you look at the character she's playing in this movie, because, of course, two years later, she would be one of the victims, I would say, of the pre-code crackdown. A lot of the fun and, and whimsy and sexiness of her characters had to be stamped down because of the code. Watching her in this movie... There is this 
total command of her awareness of who she is as a woman, let alone a character. She is always in command of the scene and the type of woman that she is. When the two guys go into her bedroom, that first moment that you see her in bed and she's talking about the drunken guys already tried to come in and be forward with her. This is a woman that holds her own. And I think it's why I love this movie so much, especially from a sexiness angle. It's another common misconception that classic films weren't sexy. That's a lie. If you watch this movie, this movie is incredibly sexy, especially in the little bits of business that her and Clark Gable have together. It's easy to see why they were cast so frequently together. The way that he gooses her, the fact that he is incredibly handsy in this movie, (laughs) this very natural, organic sexiness and sensuality to it that every time I watch this movie, I notice something where I'm just like, oh, two years later. That would not have flown. This would not be how things would go in film. Well, you know, one of the things that I find interesting, particularly in early MGM Harlow films, is her costuming. Adrian purposely puts her in costumes that don't have closing. They don't have clasps. They don't have buttons. So she has to hold them shut with her hand. These negligees or kimonos. So there's always this hint and and hope that oh it's going to fly open oh she's holding it shut in red-headed woman there is a slight if you go frame by frame she is topless uh, changes the top and there is a couple of frames of her breasts exposed that shocked me i just watched that on the big screen not too long <laughs> yeah. ago i'd only seen it on the small screen and never noticed it on the big screen that's very noticeable yeah and how this stuff gets past the sensors back then is amazing same thing in china seas the strap on her dress breaks and for a couple of frames her breast is exposed quick cut it's all fixed so i just always imagine they must have like so, oh, here's your drink, Mr. Sensor, as you're watching this. So they take their eyes off the screen for just that moment. It's such a funny thing. Kim, you and I talk about, we've talked about thirst in classic filmdom. This is a movie that I'm just going to say, for lack of a better word, this is an incredibly horny movie. Everybody's out in the jungle. They're sweaty. It is just a very, very lusty, lusty movie. From the minute that Gable and Harlow lock eyes. This is a guy that enters the room and he's like, I don't care about this woman at all. Send her back. 30 seconds later, it's not even implied. It's just pretty much stated that they have slept together and they've had this wild weekend or couple of days. And he's like, bye. I always watch this movie feeling for Vantine. I wish that this was her movie and not... Dennis Carson's because Clark Gable is kind of a jerk. He tells her, this was so much fun. You should be paying me type of situation. It's just really ridiculous. Once Mary Astor shows up and Mary Astor, Daryl, I'm sure you know as well, had a very different persona in film. We know that Mary Astor had, similar to Harlow, a very convoluted personal life that would get worse as time would go on. Her private life would be exposed to the newspapers and the courtroom during a very ugly custody battle. They share more in common than I think people would assume on first blush, but her character of Barbara shows up and is considered this other woman. But even in that 
instance where these are two women that are supposed to just naturally hate each other, there is this relationship and this respect that blooms between the two of them. I don't know about you two, but I was just waiting before somebody sends me an angry email saying this never would have happened in 1932. I know. I was just hoping they got together because Clark Gable's (laughs) kind of horrible. Here is a short little ad for our Patreon. If you are a fan of old Hollywood, classic entertainment, and the joy of pop culture history in all its forms, please subscribe to our Patreon page like these wonderful people. Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Jacob Haller, and MCF. Our Patreon page is located at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. That's ticklish B-I-Z. If we can reach 30 subscribers, you'll be treated to a full special episode looking at the 1976 TV biopic Gable and Lombard starring Jill Clayburgh and James Brolin as the iconic pair. Is the movie everything you'd hope it to be? And take that to mean whatever you want it to. Subscribe to Ticklish Biz and help us reach that goal. A special reminder, if we can get to 100 subscribers, we are looking forward to posting a deep dive into an infamous movie in Ticklish Business Circles. Does love truly mean never having to say you're sorry? Well, if we can get to 100 subscribers, you'll get to hear all of our opinions on Love Story. Trust me, there's a lot of them. Meanwhile, we have a new project in the hopper. Beginning in May 2022, we'll begin a brand new season of Based on a True Podcast episodes looking at the king of rock and roll himself, appropriately entitled Being Elvis. The special series will examine a new Elvis biopic each week, beginning with Kurt Russell's memorable turn in 1979's Elvis and coming to a close with director Baz Luhrmann's new movie based on the singer's life entitled, you guessed it, Elvis. The series will be available to Ticklish Business Patreon subscribers beginning the week of May 27th. Now, back to the show. Daryl, Kim, what do you two think of Mary Astor alongside Harlow in this? First of all, and say in this movie, Clark Gable is very unhappy. He's a very unhappy man. He's overworked. There's nothing in his life that's bringing any happiness to him. That's who Vantine meets. It's not Clark Gable's a bad guy. It's this Dennis is just having a really rotten life. She entertains him for a while. And then when Barbara shows up, oh, this might be his escape. Now he's going to go and have a better life. That's the, the important thing about him in this film, very much like China Seas. Mary Astor is just the perfect prim and proper lady on the surface. Harlow has that very distinct persona, but who do we think of? Mary Astor played plenty of prim and proper, but who do we think of Mary Astor first? Most classic film fans, Bridget O'Shaughnessy. We think of her as that bad girl. She might be Mrs. Smith and meet meet me in St. Louis for a lot of people, but she brings, similar to Harlow, a very self-assured, very strong, very in tune with herself persona as well that comes through definitely in this movie as well. I could totally see the Clark Gable is Clark Gable and Jean Raymond is going to be Jean Raymond in this film. So yeah, we know these ladies would probably be just as independent and happy with each other than they would with these two respective dolts, for lack of a better word. To go back to talking about Gable and Harlow, to look at the other films they made after this. I always read that after Paul Byrne's death, Harlow being considered this, not vamp, but she was considered a bombshell and a sexy woman maybe drove him to this. 
her persona changed, especially with the arrival of the code. Told your man she's not anything but just a woman that Clark Gable's crook ends up meeting in this pretty typical romantic comedy. Wife versus secretary, which is well into the pre-code era. She's the other woman alongside Myrna Loy, who, if we're talking about personas, Myrna Loy was considered the ultimate wife. She was Nora Charles. So that movie is about these two women that are in a far more antagonistic type of love triangle. Even though Harlow does the right thing at the end of that movie, she never had a shot to begin with. Even in something like Libel Lady, which is not a Gable movie at all, I really hate that she is considered the, not trashy, but she's considered low class to, again, Myrna Loy, who is this heiress. I always am thrown by how her persona changed based off of nothing more than I would say rumor and innuendo and maybe just watching this in redheaded woman. She only made two really, and maybe platinum blonde, if you want to throw that in, scandalous films where she is this super sexy woman. A lot of the movies after The Code and after Burns' suicide, she had to pay for that, which never really sits well with me. They struggled with her persona after Burn because, I mean, you had the insinuations of the impotence. I don't remember if we made this clear. So Paul Byrne was Gene Harlow's producer husband. He was just below head of production at MGM. Much older. He was, what, in his 40s? 42. Committed suicide on Labor Day. And there was a very graphic, probably graphic by 1932 term, suicide note left, insinuations of impotence. And then a little while later, Burns' ex-wife or first wife was discovered dead as well. It's a very convoluted, very interesting true crime story. If the true crime aficionados might find some interesting reading there. But all of this was hanging over Harlow's head right after this. So you could see the MGM publicity machine potentially getting very nervous about staking a lot in this sexy bombshell who has these kind of problems going on. In terms of her work after this, Hold Your Man I've seen once. And Wife versus Secretary, I really struggled. I don't know if it was putting her opposite Myrna Loy or there was something in that relationship that just did not work. I may have felt so bad for Myrna Loy throughout. It was just a struggle. Saratoga is just sad for other reasons because that was her last film. The only thing I remember about Paul Byrne is most people know I lived in Sacramento. We have a thing in Sacramento. It's the Delta King Hotel. It's a steamship. It's not a working steamboat anymore, but it's now a hotel where you can stay. And Paul Byrne's wife killed herself by jumping off the back of it. I have always wanted to go there. I I know. It's the one thing that I still am kicking myself. And all the time I lived in Sacramento, I never got to visit it. I'm not really sure how wheelchair friendly it is, which I would need to look into. It's on my bucket list. I keep saying I'm going to go check it out. Daryl, do you see a persona change in Harlow's films? I would assume that if your persona is changing, if the studio is telling you you have to change, I would assume it would affect how you look at yourself mentally. Do you see something like that here in the film she made after The Code and after Red Dust? I don't feel like Red Dust is the thing that 
causes the change. It's the motion picture code coming in in 1934 that does it. Red Dust shoots her to A-list movie star status, followed by Dinner at Eight. Now it becomes iconic. White on White, that's Gene Harlow. Hold Your Man is the next Gable Harlow movie to make everyone happy. She's still sympathetic. And Bombshell, the best of them all, in my opinion. Girl from Missouri, what it was supposed to be and what it became are two very different things. It's that code that means, okay, now we've got to start dealing with her differently. So they're trying to find how many different ways can we change what she can do, but still keep her audience. What's interesting is that as the years go by, it's women who embrace Jean Harlow. That's her key audience in the future. She can't be a prostitute anymore. She can't be a girl who lives on the streets too much. She has to be a showgirl. So she has to start moving towards being respectable or being a lady or somebody who is strong in their own personhood. It's a progression that she was happy with because she didn't want to just be a sex symbol. New comedy, she got to do serious things. She did some things that weren't necessarily great vehicles for her, but she got to do more things as an actor. It's weirdly ironic, too, to go back to talking about Mary Astor. This was the last movie that Mary Astor made in 1932, and she worked incredibly steady throughout the 1930s, made several movies. It would be a couple years later in 1936 that she would play the other woman in Dodsworth, which you can listen to our episode on Dodsworth that we did. That's a different type of other woman, right? Because that's a movie that she's this sympathetic, rather chaste other woman that you feel that the Walter Houston character should be with her, but he's got this wife. She's kind of a shrew. I just find that really ironic that a couple years later, if you were going to do another woman plot line, Mary Astor was going to be the other woman because there was this inherent perception of class. To go back to Red Dust, that is something that really is unspoken in this movie. There is this real hierarchy of class. Obviously, the Asian characters are at the bottom of this because it's 1932 and casual racism is the law of the land in this rubber plantation. Then you have the character played by Jean Raymond and Mary Astor, the Willises, who are the owners of this plantation that really do come in. And it's every trope that you would expect. These rich, probably city people come into the jungle. Jean Raymond's immediately laid low with malaria. They can't handle it. It does require Clark Gable's dentist to go from being this head man who's in charge to just being this dirt under their shoe. And then you have Harlow's character who, because he has no power of his own, he has to treat her poorly because of her position in life. I was fascinated watching this again and looking at how this movie navigates the strictures of class based not just on socioeconomic factors, but gender and race. John Lee Mahan wrote many incredible scripts that were not necessarily socially conscious, but we're looking at things like that. But to compare this to something like Dodsworth with Mary Astor a couple years later, there's this weird transition where you could have everybody in the same class, but even then gender and the perception of 
what makes a woman classy is different. There's those slight changes. I went on a whole tangent there. (laughs) No, I've always been fascinated with questions of Harlow's persona and class because she has this inherent relatability to her, which is partially why she could appeal to women. Her character in Redheaded Woman, that's a hard character and it's a challenging film, but she's funny. She's relatable. That's the same thing here. You can have this sexy bad girl and you don't hate her. I've always equated it to where are we historically right now? We're smack dab in the depression. She always has this slight spin. She knows she's from the wrong side of the tracks, but everybody's struggling at this point in history. Very few people have class or are part of the upper classes. She wants to be upwardly mobile. She wants to get ahead. Everybody was trying to get ahead because everybody was struggling. And she is such a product of the depression for me. It's a study. I don't know if it could have worked 10 years later, what Harlow did. I don't know. Mary Astor is really popular in my head right now. But look at both of their lives. Mary Astor was born in Illinois. Harlow was born in Kansas City, Missouri. Daryl, feel free to correct me if I make any mistakes here. But her dad was a dentist, relatively successful. He was a very successful dentist. Her mother's side of the family, her grandfather was a successful real estate person. So she came from some money. Mary Astor, her parents were very ambitious. They recognized that she was very beautiful. They pushed her into acting. I would say maybe on the surface, somewhat similar to Harlow's mother, who also did have ambitions for her in that way. But at the same time, it always strikes me that Jean Harlow's, she played so many characters that were considered low rent. There's so many jokes about her not being able to read. Either that's in Libel Lady or Dinner at Eight makes a joke about that. It just makes me think of all of the blondes, you know, that we've talked about historically on this show, your Marilyn's, your Jane Mansfield. Being a blonde, as much as it made Jean Harlow famous, I hate that it gave the studio system this inherent belief that, oh, and Jean Harlow was never going to play a doctor like Kay Francis did. She was never going to play Marie Curie like Greer Garson did. There was this inherent belief from the higher ups that she was supposed to be somebody who was not well educated, would probably be a sex worker. We talk about it so much with Marilyn Monroe, but I don't think we talk nearly enough about it with Jean Harlow. And she came before all of that. Part of it is physical, the way her face is built. She has an unusual nose for that face. Pudgy cheeks, she had to be lit very carefully so that there is commoner look about her. But attached to it is this incredible body and then this sensational hair. So she was not a one-trick pony type thing. She didn't wear underwear. So when she walked, things bounced. It's part of her physical persona. She would have to be bound down to play a classy lady. Wife versus secretary is a really good example of her playing someone who has a certain amount of pedigree or class. She's not the cheap secretary that she was in Redheaded Woman. Now she's respectable, refined, not vulgar in any way. And she's very successful in it. If we're talking about women of this era who were known for not wearing undergarments, I love that it's 
Jean Harlow issuing underwear and Betty Davis issuing bras. Only in that time were you able to find costumers that were just willing to work with that and create mm-hmm. magic. <laughs> you know, I was friends with Mary Carlisle and Mary never wore bras. She just told me, no, I just never did. I love it. We don't have nearly enough stories about that in that time period. So I think that at the pre-code era costumes in that time, I know this with my girl Lupe Velez, who notoriously the costumes that they made for her involved cutouts and weird things where you're just like, it's leaving nothing to the imagination. But that's why the 30s outfits are so iconic, because it's showing how costumes were almost like this weird math problem where they had to figure out how to use fabric and certain things and a lack of foundation garments in a way that makes magic happen. It was an art form. Yeah, definitely. Definitely so. I want to throw out the fact that Dean Raymond is here. Poor guy. He plays the other dude. I always forget that he's a thing in this movie because you're not really watching it for him. You're watching it for the three women. But this movie did get remade in the 1950s as Magambo, directed by John Ford. This time it was set in Africa rather than in Indochina. Shot on location. It's in color. Ooh, we're talking about class and persona. We kept Clark Gable because remember, men in Hollywood don't age. They're just allowed to uh, transform like a fine wine. So he could still play that character that he played in 1932. Instead, we get Ava Gardner playing the Jean Harlow role and Grace Kelly in the Mary Astor role. I have not seen Magambo. I have been told by our co-host, Samantha Ellis, that it is terrible. Has anybody else seen it? What yes, do we make I've of seen it? it? No, it's not terrible. But if you've seen Red Dust, you'll be disappointed in Magambo. It's just not as good. The writing isn't as good. It's so crystal clear and smart in Red Dust. And then to see, here's the variation of that paragraph or what this character says. The original is just so much better. It's interesting that they play the earthy Gene Harlow character goes to a brunette and the rich, classy lady who was Mary Astor with dark hair, is blonde in this movie. So they flip that. It's the earthiness, I think, is the key to playing that regular character. That's the thing Ava Gardner and Jean Harlow have in common. Well, because there was something Grace Kelly wasn't. It was earthy. (laughs) (laughs) Earthy versus icy. Maybe one day we'll do a double features and we'll talk about Red Dust in Magambo. I just look at that casting, and Grace Kelly and Ava Gardner very much examples of this 1950s filmmaking, right? And your mileage varies depending on what you think about each of them. Grace Kelly, I always say it's fine. She's never been a performer where I've been blown away by anything. Do not send me emails about the country girl because I will not <laughs> read them. Ava Gardner, she's a great noir femme fatale, but was one of those actresses, unfortunately, as the 60s and 70s came through. She became known for being a bit of a ham. John Ford movies also are one of those where they're hit and miss for me. Maybe one day I'll get to it. 50s Gable, ain't 30s Gable. We haven't really talked about Gable. I'll give a couple seconds to pre-code Clark Gable. I love pre-code Clark Gable. Every time I say it in my head, I hear guitars and like reverb in my head because it is just on a whole other level. You watch this and Nightners get to see a side of Gable that unfortunately... If we're talking about people who the code changed their persona 
much like Harlow's, Gable's persona changed a lot after the code went into force. He never played outright horrific villains like he does in something like Night Nurse or even this movie or even Worse or Free Soul. Gable. Free Soul, I think. 31. Free Soul. Thank you. And here he's just such a cad. I wish that he got to play that more consistently instead of being dashing leading man. He's good as dashing leading man, but I'm all for Clark Gable when he's just murdering children, being utterly horrible. <laughs> Thinking off the cuff, how much of that was the code and how much of that was too was gone with the wind launching him to a new stratosphere? Valid, valid. That could very well be it. Nobody wants to see Rhett Butler threaten to kill children and punch Barbara Stanwyck in the face. Damn you, Code. Take that away from me. Is there anything else we wanted to throw out that we maybe didn't touch on before we close it up? One thing that I find really interesting about Red Dust is that they had an outline when they started filming and they were literally writing as they were filming. There's a letter that Jean Harlow wrote to relatives of hers in Kansas City in the middle of Red Dust where she was supposed to shoot a scene and just before the scene's getting shot, they handed her pages. Okay, here's your new dialogue. And so she's tearing her hair out, trying to make good, but they keep changing things on her. It was a pretty fractious film shoot. The final film just seems so seamless. It's really impressive to see how that, trying to think of the right metaphor, when you're cooking something and the lid is just almost popping off because it's in the middle of baking. What they've made just works brilliantly. I didn't know that. You would never know it by watching that film if it was that chaotic. If we're talking about the Gene Harlow movies to watch, Red Dust has to be on the list, as well as all of her films. She really did some amazing work in leading roles, supporting roles, minor roles. She's just great in everything. Send us your thoughts on what you think about Gene Harlow, Red Dust, pre-code Clark Gable. You can email them to us, send them to us via Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. We're on all social medias. We want to thank Daryl Rooney once again for joining us. Daryl, where are you on social media? I have a Facebook page, Harlow in Hollywood, named for a book. I'm on Instagram just as myself. Maybe I need to do a Harlow Instagram page. Yes. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As we said already, you can follow Ticklish Business on all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, just search Ticklish Business or Ticklish Biz and you will find us. We are available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Player FM. If you are listening via Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. They really, really do help. And if you would like to get some cool merch, get some free DVDs or Blu-rays, or maybe be on an episode, you can support us via Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. As we said in our mid-roll, we are trying very hard to do an episode on 1976's Gable and Lombard. Speaking of Clark Gable, have you ever wanted to see James Brolin play Clark Gable? Well, we can tell you about that if we talk about Gable and Lombard. We also are hoping to do an episode on the worst classic film of all time, which is 1971's Love Story. We have all of our TCM classic film audio going up there, including the panels with Piper Laurie, Floyd Norman, and Margaret O'Brien. There's a lot of stuff over there, as well as our two bonus series. Being Elvis is our six-week based on a true podcast series we just started. We have been talking about six different Elvis films, starting with the Kurt Russell 1979 Elvis 
And we will be putting out the 1980s Elvis and the Beauty Queen starring Don Johnson as Elvis. That will be coming soon. So that's patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. Till then.